Welcome to the eLaborate Topics Podcast, where we focus on lab-specific strategies for medical laboratory professionals. We're proud to be the healthcare detectives that work behind the scenes to get the results needed to influence medical decisions. Let's grow together and jump right into the lab. Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Elaborate Topics. I'm your host for today's show, Stephanie Whitehead. For those of you tuning in for the first time, I'm your podcasting executive laboratory leader and co-host for Elaborate Topics. Elaborate Topics is a weekly podcast where myself and my co-hosts, Lona Small and Taiwana Wilson, are bringing you topics related to the laboratory and leadership that will help you excel inside and outside the laboratory. And I'm so excited for today's show, so I just want to get right into it, because today I'm joined by a very special guest and friend of the show, Ms. Dana Bostick. Hi, Dana. Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I don't have that clapping sound effect machine yet, so if I did, it would have been like that round of applause. Uh, Uh, We could do it together. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Well, thank you for joining me today, and congratulations on a job well done as a recent panelist on the ASCP Town Hall. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was honored to be a part of that. Um, awesome uh, colleagues, a part of that panel, and a really uh, timely, uh, crucial discussion. But I hope oh, it's an right. ongoing discussion. <laughs> Really, and I think it's a, it's a super important topic. If you're listening to the show and you missed the August 6th ASCP Town Hall where Dana and other panelists discussed, like Dana said, the very timely issue of laboratory diversity and health equality, you can go to ASCP.com and view a recording of the webinar. So Dana's bio will be in the link to the show, and today we'll be talking about the emerging, solution, emerging solutions and opportunities in the clinical laboratory workforce. But before we do that, I want to talk about some of her awesome accomplishments in her career. So Dana, you've been highlighted by several laboratory professional organizations for your contributions in the laboratory profession. Uh, Tell the listeners a little bit why it's important to be an advocate, especially in our field. Wow, Um, that's a really good question. I would say, if I made it, I guess, more of a personal point, um, earlier on in my career, um, which I'm sure if I have previous uh, managers or supervisors on uh, listening, um, I, I was known to be uh, somewhat of a little hothead um, when it came to certain things. Um, I always believed in um, advocating uh, for yourself, uh, being your own advocate, being an advocate for each other, um, especially when it came around to, you know, holiday time, you're on second or third shift, you're getting the leftover turkey from first shift, you know, why can't we have our own turkey? You know, that's probably when I really started <laughs> my advocacy. Um, but then, you know, it just got to a deeper level, you know, it really wasn't about the turkey per se, but it was just about taking care of your people, taking care of each other, um, you know, doing the best that we can to keep people engaged and interested in the profession. Um, you know, you, you sacrifice a lot of time, um, a lot of rest um, when you are pursuing this degree path or this career path. And so to get in it and just to have like just a little things that would bother me <laughs> earlier on um, that I would, um, I would say, um, defend or um, advocate for um, really rolled into bigger things. And, um, and things as far as, you know, just, you know, we're always talked about being um, in the shadows or the hidden profession, the overlooked profession. And that was something that I really took to heart because I was like, man, but we do so much. We, we play such a major role and part in patient care. Um, it's not just doctors or nurses that are patient advocates. We are patient advocates too. Um, You know, if only um, people can see us publicly and um, the errors that we prevent and the lives that are saved by the, you know, information that we generate um, contributing to that uh, clinical decision-making process. And so I would say it's really evolved over the course of my career, and it really takes um, more than one or more than five of us to bring light and attention and voice to what we do, but also just the promoting the fact that we are a part of the healthcare team, a vital part, and that we are helping to save lives every day. 
That is so good. That's such a great explanation. And you've got the perfect background to be an advocate for the laboratory professional because profession because your background is pretty is pretty wide reaching and very broad, including infectious disease testing, immunohistochemistry, learning and development, interpersonal interprofessional education, and healthcare stimulation. So why don't you tell the listeners a little about your laboratory journey and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. Uh, so during my undergraduate years at Georgia Southern University uh, in Statesboro, Georgia, um, believe it or not, I actually started out as a public relations major. And um, I really wanted to go into PR. I know it's hard to believe, right? Really? And, um, <laughs> and so uh, I started on that path. However, um, Growing up, I always wanted to be in healthcare. I was always uh, very passionate about um, healthcare as a whole, especially given the um, the health status of my mom. My mom um, is a four-time cancer survivor, uh, so very oh, strong lady. But um, thank you. And um, but growing up, you know, experiencing that journey with her, just being around um, healthcare professionals um, in that way. Um, my grandmother and my aunt. Um, were nurses, and so um, we had a lot of um, those interesting conversations around the family table. And so when I started my PR major, although I enjoyed it, it didn't really speak to me in the same way um, that healthcare always has. It's always been a, um, I would say, a cornerstone of my life. And so when I went back to the university catalog and came across medical technology, I uh, looked at it said, yeah, this seems like a total fit. I love science. Any science course I was in, I pretty much excelled in at that time. And um, it really piqued my interest. You know, it was a way to get into the healthcare field. And, um, and it just seemed to fit my skill set. And so um, by um, being accepted into the um, medical technology program at that time, Armstrong State um, Atlantic University, which is now part of the Georgia Southern family, so that's awesome. But um, ended up relocating to Savannah uh, under the um, tutelage of uh, Dr. Lester Hardegree and Dr. Hassan Aziz. And so um, I always tell people now, because uh, me and Dr. Aziz get spotted a lot together these days, and um, I'm like, seriously, he's been my lifelong mentor. Um, so, you know, he's been a part of my life. Uh, since my undergraduate years, and I really appreciate his leadership and guidance and the firm footing that he had to put into me as an undergraduate student. I, I was a hardhead. But, um, and so that really started the journey, I would say. Um, and then I was one of the first two students from our program to uh, do clinical rotations at the Medical University of South Carolina. So, uh, me and three other classmates ended up in uh, Charleston, South Carolina for our clinical rotation experience. Loved it there, loved it, loved it. That was the best foundation uh, for my career, I would say. We were exposed to so many different things, and um, their facility is just massive. Their uh, patient population is huge and very diverse, and so um, anything you can imagine seeing, you saw it there. And I stayed there for a couple of years uh, before returning to the Atlanta, Georgia area uh, to continue my work. So I started out in chemistry, uh, ended up um, transitioning more so into blood bank around that time. Uh, all, blood bank was always a favorite course of mine in my undergraduate training. So uh, I pursued that path, uh, working in adult settings, uh, pediatric settings, eventually transitioned into um, working in a blood donation center that was uh, closely affiliated with a uh, cancer center. And so I got to see everything from um, blood donor uh, collection through us doing component processing and uh, delivering those uh, blood components to the hospital. Uh, so it was interesting to see the process really from beginning to, um, to end or disposition, I would say, with blood products. And that experience uh, created a really good foundation for me to go into infectious disease testing, where we um, actually performed all the testing on uh, blood um, components, I would say. Uh, so that was a really, um, a really great, I'd say, journey. But even in that um, journey, I was exposed to flow cytometry testing. I was also exposed to... Um, you know, different leadership positions. I at one point became a lead, transitioned into a lab supervisor, um, ultimately becoming a, a 
a training specialist, uh, which was, uh, I feel like, more of my jam. I've always been really into education and training from early on. Um, I was always given the new people <laughs> to train because of um, <laughs> my um, positive demeanor, I would say. I always loved training. And so um, whether it was students that were observing or new hires or even just annual competency training, I, I was the point person for a lot of that. And so that, um, I'll say that love really um, helped to um, help me to transition into other spaces in the lab. And so ultimately, of course, I ended up making that ultimate transition from the bench uh, to uh, teaching. Um, and so that's what I do now as a full-time thing. Wow, that's an awesome journey, especially hearing that you were the one who uh, volunteered and stepped up for all of the CLS students and, and new people. But that's not a task that many people often uh, pursue uh, in their daily in their right. daily shift. And right. So our, <laughs> one of our co-hosts, Lona Small, actually recently did an interview interviewing Carlos Ledesma on the value of receiving your doctorate in clinical laboratory science. And I understand that you're also pursuing your doctorate degree. So tell us how that pursuit is going and maybe what you hope to do after you've achieved that doctorate. Um, it's going, I would say, really well. Um, of course, um, prior to starting this degree, I'd already obtained my uh, MBA and a master's degree in healthcare simulation. Um, but even through going both of the, through both of those programs, I would say, I still found myself craving um, wanting a formal education in education. And so if you um, research the literature, you know, there's a lot of information out there about the transition of health science faculty from their clinical practice to, uh, um, to you know, entering academia. And so one of the things that they've noted is that, you know, you come in with this awesome skill set and experiences that really um, tailors more so to, you know, clinical training, I would say, but we don't have a, a firm hold or understanding of um, pedagogy and um, how to teach and how to develop objectives and, um, you know, how to foster learning in different environments and different settings. So I would say more of those uh, formative skills that I would say um, that I was able to receive a touch of that in my master's degree programs and, of course, in my experience in education. However, I just really thought, you know, if I'm going to stick with being an educator, I really want to be the best education, I would say educator, rather, that I can be. And so in pursuing my doctoral degree in education, I'm hoping to come out on the other end of it, um, one, a better researcher, and two, uh, a more well-rounded educator so that I can give um, the most or the best of myself and helping to prepare that future pipeline of uh, laboratory professionals. Wow, thank you. And so I'm so excited to talk to you uh, today about this topic because it's, it's a topic that's been um, kind of circulating in our profession for some time, and it's about the solutions and opportunities that we have uh, for our workforce and some of the challenges that are um, we're facing in our workforce, um, particularly, you know, all aspects, but uh, the laboratory professionals and even, you know, we could have a whole separate conversation about pathologists. But um, when we talk about the workforce sh shortage affecting laboratory, medical laboratory professors, professors um, for our listeners, uh, if you haven't gone back, you can go back to episode 10 for myself and my co-host. Um, in the show, you should, should you pursue an advanced degree or certification, we touched on in the beginning of the show um, the workforce shortage, and there was a uh, 2018 ASCLS uh, source that projected a 13% increase nationwide in the need for laboratory professionals. However, with the workforce shortage, would we be able to or um, kind of the negative perspective of us being able to meet that uh, demand on the increased um, need nationwide for our profession. So uh, what's your take on our shortage? What's your perspective on um, the state of our workforce as it is? I think there's multiple layers to that, um, especially given I know a lot of the focus or attention has been given to retirement. 
um, which retirement is a huge factor, um, and not just on the, uh, I would say, the clinical bench side of things, but also on the education side of it. We're losing um, CLS educators uh, to retirement, and so how do we backfill those spots or those vacancies? But also given, you know, the number of programs that we have in the country, the um, number of spots in those programs, also, how are we mentoring or preparing uh, our younger professionals to uh, transition to these roles? Are we adequately preparing them to step into leadership positions? Are we adequately preparing them to enter into education? Um, also, we have to look at the, the barriers in, sadly, within our profession when it comes to pay. Um, you know, you'll have students that may consider coming into these programs, but they look at other professions, such as nursing, for instance, and say, you know what, you know, it, both are difficult or hard programs. I'd rather go the path where I'm guaranteed to make more money uh, versus going this route where I may not be making the type of salary or wage that I feel like that I deserve. And so we have to look at, as a profession, how do we, you know, one, increase our wages? You know, how do we up our salaries to make them more competitive, uh, especially given the, the work that we do, the contributions that we make uh, to healthcare and to patient care? But also, how do we look at promoting our profession, um, once again, coming out of the shadows of healthcare and making ourselves visible uh, to where it is a profession that attracts more people to the profession, to the, working in the field. But, you know, and that's why I say there's just so many layers to this. Um, also, once we get people in, you know, how are we retaining people? Are we treating people well? Are we meeting their work-life balance needs? Um, what works necessarily for one generation may not be suitable uh, for the next. And so how are we accommodating a multi-generational workforce and meeting the needs, the desires, but also the expectations of that workforce and vice versa? Because, you know, we all have to be intrinsically motivated to want to, you know, continue on this path or journey within this field. And I think it's, it's harder when you don't feel recognized for the work that you're doing. But also for some, you know, they, I've heard people say, you know, well, I've just become, I've become bored. I feel complacent. I'm not um, seeing the career path or the desired path that I want to go within this field. So I think definitely with the introduction of the DCLS, that's, uh, I'll say a, a new light at the end of the tunnel where, you know, we've um, built on to our career ladder and uh, potential opportunities. But I think it also speaks to, you know, just how we can educate the public more on what we can do, how we can contribute, how we can advance. But, um, but once again, going back to that point of advocacy, we have to advocate continuously for ourselves and in fighting for the wages that we feel like we so deserve. I feel like that's super important because when you touched on all of the different layers that kind of compound and um, create this issue of this workforce shortage, um, a lot of these are, are really relevant. And a lot of them, as a laboratory leader myself, are things that you're actively trying to combat every single day. You know, we, we sit and look at our retention uh, rates and we, you know, intrinsically study exit interviews from people who have left our department and gone on either to transition to other areas, like you said, they've left the profession and maybe they've become a pharmacist or a nurse because they wanted to make mm -hmm. a higher salary or right. um, they, you know, they've left us to go to another um, hospital, both create an impact of vacancy and a void that you've got to feel and backfill um, with another competent um, medical laboratory science. And really just understanding that you can only help the situation with, through automation so much. Mm -hmm. But at a point, you still need a, a critically skilled, incompetent blood bank professional or microbiologist um, who really, you know, intrinsically understands the dynamics of the laboratory profession to help you. Um, and right. it's, it's becoming harder to, you know, uh, have somebody who is willing to invest those number of years uh, to be, to gain that level of competence and then stay in your area because, you know, laboratory professionals, I hate to toot our own horn, but, you know, many of them are, are very bright, skilled, gifted young, young individuals. Um, and when you have that level of talent, it's very easy to be rude to other professions that you could perceive would be paid more and things like that. We all have bills and things yeah. to worry about outside of, outside of work, so we completely understand. Um, as yeah, part absolutely. of the shortage... 
um, some of the shortage is also due to, you know, as we know, and as you probably know yourself, being so well connected to the circle, the decrease in training programs nationally. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the decrease of training programs nationally or qualified training programs nationally, coupled with the increase in need for techs, coupled with the number of techs choosing to exit the profession, as an assistant professor in a, in a strong CLS program, are you, are, is your program taking steps to combat this, or what's, what's the strategy you guys are using um, uh, right now in your, in your workplace? World domination <laughs> um, is our goal. <laughs> no, um, I would say our strategies, um, we come at it from a couple of different angles. Uh, of course, our recruitment um, uh, component, I would say, um, you know, trying our best to get out. I mean, I know it's COVID-19 right now, so it's changed that, but getting out in front of groups, um, you know, wherever we can, whether it's, um, you know, through volunteer service at a back-to-school fair or uh, going to speak at different high schools, different area colleges, community colleges, um, just continuing in our, our outreach, building relationships, which we could still do even now um, during this pandemic period, is still uh, fostering and building those uh, community partnerships um, and just staying connected to the local needs of our area, um, as that also does um, help with our recruitment. But I think also just... Um, just being very engaged as much as we can, um, being a part of different societies or organizations such as ASCP or ASCLS. Um, you know, we all have our strengths, our areas of um, interest. As a, We have a pretty, I would say, sizable uh, faculty department. And so I think that helps in our reach into these different areas. You know, maybe one faculty member is um, very um, strong in uh, public policy, whereas you have someone else who is really strong in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, so we really um, are able to hone our strengths and develop those um, to make us more um, more of a formidable force, <laughs> I would say, and mm-hmm. um, getting out there and um, just staying involved and staying as engaged as we possibly can while also um, keeping our ear to the ground about innovations in education. So, um, you know, getting better at remote online delivery in light of COVID, you know, being able to transition our courses that we would typically do on campus to an online format, but also uh, still being um, creative or innovative in incorporating interprofessional education and simulation uh, into our uh, program curriculum so that, you know, we are staying as much as we can at the forefront of uh, CLS education, but also making sure that we're staying in tune with the needs of today's healthcare workforce. So you touched on COVID-19 a little bit, and um, I'm glad you did because it's a really relevant and in, in, um Right now, we're, where we're facing with everybody gearing up, it's, it's the fall, perhaps going back to school. Schools will look very different than they did last year, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. For other educators out there listening, or even, even for other CLS students that will be entering into a new semester coming up, talk about some of the specific challenges that you and your education team are facing right now um, based on the impact of COVID-19 on the education system, and perhaps how do you foresee educational programs or clinical rotations changing to adjust and adapt to the new guidelines um, that have been put in place to, to maintain safety during this pandemic, such as social distancing, all of those things? Um, I would say kind of starting with the back end of your question, uh, just because we have learners that have just started uh, their clinical rotations. And so I think one of the biggest challenges we were facing or areas of concern, I would say, is our students' ability to start their clinical rotations and be able to complete them in the time that, um, that, you know, is typically uh, stipulated for them to meet their rotation requirements so that they can, you know, of course, receive the training that they need and still graduate on time. And so, you know, that's where once again that um, 
having a really good relationship with your community partners, with your host institutions, um, having that open line of communication, making sure that we're addressing any concerns or alleviating any concerns. You know, maybe it's a clinical uh, site that used to take four students, now they can only accommodate one due to restrictions. So just um, becoming more well-versed in uh, what may be impacting that facility, what uh, their new guidances or guidelines may be for um, hosting students but also making sure that we're meeting them um, in or alleviating those concerns that they may have, such as, you know, well, are we responsible for checking their temperatures? No, we've put a system in place that, you know, they check their temperatures, they're um, communicating that information, you know, to us on a daily basis that they're same day that they're reporting in for their clinical rotations. You don't have to worry about that. Okay, great. So just, you know, making sure that we're not adding uh, stress or additional burden I would say to the sites um, because, you know, they're going through their own issues. They're going through their own staffing problems, um, you know, trying to meet the uh, COVID-19 guidelines that have been implemented, but also now you're having to look out for these students or learners coming into that space and making sure that you're providing a safe learning environment for them as well. So in any way that we can alleviate any additional stress or burden, I would say, um, we we're really um, proactive in doing our part in doing that. Um, as far as other concerns, uh, of course, you know, we're a very hands-on program. You know, uh, lectures were on campus. We have student labs. So, you know, reconfiguring that student laboratory space to once again make sure that, you know, because safety is our number one concern for our learners. So how do we make this space productive yet safe? Um, you know, do we need to add um, more PPE, make sure that we're well stocked with masks and hand sanitizer and wash stations and, you know, making sure our hallways are clear to accommodate social distancing? Uh, what do we need to add plexiglass dividers? You know, um, how do we need to order even more supplies so that um, learners are not having to share as much? So these were all, we've had several meetings, weekly meetings, um, really discussing this and brainstorming and just coming up with ideas to really make sure that, you know, we can still provide a quality, effective educational experience um, without sacrificing safety, you know, as a part of that. So. I would say just, and just having that natural concern, you know, we're all human and, you know, as educators, you know, of course we're focused on what we're doing in the academic environment, but we have our families at home as well. And so, you know, trying to balance both of those worlds, you know, um, it, it could take its toll, you know, we, you know, we take it home with us every day. And uh, so I think just recognizing and acknowledging the human component in that, and that, you know, we we have the same fears, we have the same concerns, um, you know, there's the same level of worry there, but we're all trying to do our best and do our part. And um, of course, just having that shared uh, vision or mental model of us being safe, but also still doing our very best to um, make the best of things. Those things are so true. And um, I would say if you're, if you're person like me operating in a laboratory, one of the uh, advices I would also give is try the best you can to maintain a relationship with the CLS programs that you operate with because as mm -hmm. we're talking about, um, you know, uh, meeting assistance in our workforce, the CLS program is the uh, one of the best resources you can have as a laboratory leader or a laboratory hiring manager um, of, a, of a new stream of qualified applicants coming into your laboratory. And COVID-19, with the potential to, you know, slow that stream down or at least <laughs> um, modify, you know, how that stream yeah. looks, it's really important that we maintain that open line of communication. So the CLS program um, leads and educators understand what are the um, what are some of the, you know, enhancements that, that we've done in the hospital to maintain safety? What are some of the limitations to the program and right. to the uh, training and the rotation that we've had to implement to keep the students safe? But then also, you know, just making sure that you keep those lines of communication open so you can maintain that relationship and uh, use those candidates uh, to potentially fulfill vacancies down the line. I think it's really important right. in, the, in the laboratory that you um, – we, we touched on this earlier, but in terms of retention and in terms of creating those long-term employees in our profession, 
uh, like you said, that you, you look for areas of growth. Um, and, you know, nobody wants to come in and, you know, be the laboratory scientist working the same bench in, until they retire. A lot of times when you come into the profession, you're, you're pretty early um, in your life, in your career, and you um, typically want to know that there's going to be areas of growth for you. Um, and That's some of the true. things that we've done in, in our laboratory is, you mentioned it, actually creating a career ladder um, and creating a career ladder that uh, – that works for the employee and also works for the organization. And so the employee gets benefits like, you know, the opportunity to grow, um, the opportunity to gain more projects, more competency, more skill sets that will be beneficial to them on their resume, on their resume and be tools that they can add into their tool belt. But then also as an organization, especially if you're like my organization, your level one trauma center, it benefits us to have more SDB um, trained mm-hmm. medical technologists in our laboratory, or it benefits us Absolutely. to have other other um, medical technologists that have gotten a specialty certification, like a specialty in microbiology or virology. And you know, we do re- in return um, uh, increase the salary, so they have a monetary uh, incentive also. But wherever possible, I would suggest that laboratories you know, try to partner with the human resources and their administration to create those ladders um, within the laboratory because sometimes, you know, clinical laboratory scientists to supervise or a clinical laboratory scientists to lead, um, historically there's a long line to get those positions based mm-hmm. uh, on, on hierarchy and tenure within the laboratory. Right. And, you know, uh, sometimes that's not fair. You're not fully using the advantage of the skills and the knowledge set on your team uh, if you're just waiting for the oldest tech to take the next job. Um, So there's a lot of people on your team that can help with validations, write um, validation plans, assist with, you know, programming, assist with, you know, other IT issues and and other things like that uh, if we gave them the chance. So true. I agree. Um, some, something else that I wanted to get into is you and I, before the show, uh, had talked about um, medical laboratory sciences, understanding that there's alternative ways to operate within the field rather than leaving the field altogether, and that would be um, to pursue being an educator. So why do you think mm-hmm. it's important for professionals to consider the education route rather than leaving the field altogether? For me, it's just, I'm like, you went to school for this, you know, (laughs) you've acquired, you know, all this great content knowledge and uh, clinical expertise, you have, you have something to offer and to give back, um, whether you realize it or not. And being an educator wasn't really um, necessarily in my face, I would say. I I honestly didn't even consider it until I received a call. from a uh, coordinator out in Phoenix that um, mentioned, you know, hey, I looked at your LinkedIn profile, and I think you'd be great, um, you know, going into this line of work. What do you think? And I was like, wow, I never thought about that, but I have been training people all these years. It, it just seemed like a natural, a natural fit, a natural transition, mm-hmm. I would say. And so um, I think we need to really talk about it more and promote it more, uh, especially if that's something that you feel like you'd love to do. And I always tell, especially like my mentees, you know, don't feel like you have to abandon the profession to be able to do um, or pursue another passion of yours. So let's say if you've always wanted to become a teacher or you've always had a um, a passion for education, you can become a CLS educator, you know, um, so that way, you know, we're not you know, losing what you've learned. We're not losing out on all that experience um, that, you know, we really so desperately need, uh, especially when we look at specialty areas like microbiology and blood bank. You know, we, we need people who have that experience and that expertise. Um, you know, there is room to be creative and innovative in your um, educational delivery of that content. But also, you know, it doesn't have to be just education per se. You know, you can go into, um, you know, health informatics or, um, 
you know, laboratory information system development. Um, being in the Kansas City area, we have Cerner here, you know. And so um, there are a lot of laboratory professionals that work for that organization. So they're still contributing their um, education experience, their professional experience uh, to that work that they're doing now. So just know that, you know, it doesn't necessarily require you exiting stage left, you know. Um, to be able to grow and move on. Um, I've really appreciated that I haven't had to lose everything that I learned or um, mess out on using, um, you know, what I've given a good portion of my adult life to doing. You know, I'm still able to fall back and rely on that experience to help um, better prepare the next generation of laboratory professionals. So it, it's still contributing in some form or fashion. And so I just think that, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, just us putting it out there even more, if you are finding yourself becoming bored or complacent or just wanting to do something new, um, but you have all this awesome and wonderful experience, you know, consider going into education. You know, we're, we, there are job postings out there. We're, we're actively looking as a, um, on the side of the workforce, I would say, uh, for more educators to join the the field. And you've talked uh, in the beginning of the podcast about having a long-term mentor, and uh, you just recently mentioned having mentees yourself. So mm -hmm. in that realm, when, you know, you have people who may be thinking and listening to this podcast and thinking, well, yeah, I was thinking about applying for, you know, the pharmacy program, Tell us about the value of having mentees or being a mentor when it talks about this subject of keeping people in the profession. I think it's so beneficial. It's, um, it's amazing on both sides of the fence. I wish we would have had these opportunities uh, when we started out, especially when you look at organizations like ASCP, ASCLS, and AABB. All of those um, organizations do offer a mentorship program, whether you want to be a mentor or you um, need to be a mentee. And that's at any stage of your career. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are a a new or entry-level lab professional or a junior faculty member at your program. You could be, um, you know, further down your career path, I would say, but still seek mentorship. Um, you know, I've been in this profession for almost 20 years altogether, and so, but I still need mentorship. I, I need it, you know, um, and so, and it, it's just really, it's, it's having a voice, I would say, and, um, having a safe space to speak with someone about your, your, um, I say your dreams, your pursuits, your uh, passions, and they just really help to kind of guide that path or, you know, give you things you haven't even thought about or considered, you know, well, have you thought about this? Have you considered that? Um, you know, this would be a good way to look at something, get a, get a glimpse of it, and then, you know, make a better or well-informed decision. So, and me being a mentee, I really appreciate the um, the seasoned advice, I would say, that I receive. And um, But you have to be open to receiving that, too, and taking that information and helping it to guide your, uh, your decision-making process going forward. Um, and that's been both professionally and academically for me. But in being able to serve as a mentor now, um, I really, I, I feel myself growing in that process. Um, just because you're learning how to um, give more of yourself, I would say, in a way that, um, you know, you're, you're taking on this responsibility of someone really, you know, taking to heart what you have to say. And I want to make sure that, you know, you can't be the same mentor to everybody. Everyone has different individual needs. And so I speak to the individual needs of that particular mentee. You know, if you have a particular area of interest, that's what we're, we're honing or building on. So my first conversation is always, what are your expectations of me as a mentor? So that way I will know exactly what their needs or expectations may be, and I would ask them why they um, have sought out mentorship. You know, what exactly um, are they looking at or thinking about um, to the point where they felt like they needed a mentor? So once again, I'm making sure that I'm advising or speaking to that uh, that very thing. And so I think it's very it's a very rewarding experience on either side, and I feel like it is an obligation, especially once you know, we get to a certain point in our careers to give back. Um, that's it's just such a special and unique 
relationship building opportunity. And um, nothing makes me feel better <laughs> to see my mentees go on and just do um, awesome and amazing things. And um, which I'm sure it's like that for my mentor. And uh, <laughs> but um, but I would say, you know, it's just there's just no word to describe um, the the joy and the pride that you feel. And um, seeing someone else do so well or achieve their goal or pursue their dream all because you gave them a positive word or a positive affirmation and like, yes, you're, you're doing the right thing. Yes, you're doing an amazing job. You know, people just need to hear um, positive feedback sometimes. Um, you know, I've been in labs where I received a lot of uh, negative <laughs> feedback um, or, you know, you can't do that. Why are you doing that? You shouldn't do that. Um, you know, I wasn't really lifted, I would say, in some spaces. But, um, but you know, when you make people feel like they can do anything or that their dreams are, um, are possible, then, you know, they, it just takes on a whole new level of confidence, I feel. And, it, you know, and we need to empower each other. And mentorship provides that, um, that venue to do so. Yeah, and I've, I've had value too and being able to pay it forward and you know really instill some of the things that were instilled into me and gifted mm-hmm. into me in terms of pearls of wisdom into other people and like you said it, it is very rewarding so for listeners right. out there um, that may be discouraged by the uncertainty of the time with COVID-19 or the uncertainty right now in healthcare, maybe they work in a state where they were furloughed from their laboratory and they're kind of looking right. at what next, what do I do next, uh, what advice would you give to a listener right now who, who may be searching or discouraged or um, just not knowing what to do in this season of their career? I would say um, I know it's easier said than done, but not to be discouraged. Uh, sometimes we really do have to, you know, take our lemons and turn them into lemonade and, you know, just kind of sitting back and saying, you know, maybe this is an opportunity for me to really figure out what it is I want to do next. Um, do I want to stay where I am? Do I want to relocate? Um, maybe it is, maybe this is the nudge or the push that I needed um, to go back to school or to pursue a certain certification. Um, and so, I mean, I've, I've been there, I've, you know, been laid off or furloughed and, you know, in the moment that that happens, it's it's painful. You feel lost um, and uncertain. And but in those same instances, that's where I really saw my growth. I would say um, I never would have saw myself relocating to Phoenix, Arizona. You know, had I not been, you know, the, on the receiving end of hey, your department is going to close. <laughs> you know, because you're really forced into making a decision and making a move happen. And so um, I had to make a move happen, um, relocating from Atlanta to um, the Southwest. Um, Same thing with being in Phoenix. Hey, you know, your program has been um, noted as a program that will be closed within a year's time. Okay, what are you going to do, Dana? You know, I, I, I didn't have time to really sit in it that long. You know, of course, you know, give yourself that moment to sit in it, to absorb it, because, you know, we're human. But then turn that into action. You know, okay, well, what is this telling me? Do I need to consider something else? And just so happened, um, timing-wise, I had this opportunity come up in Kansas City. Never been to the Midwest in my entire life. What I never thought. (laughs) I lived in Kansas City. And, um, but it it took something like that to happen, to um, propel me to um, seek other things that I would have never sought out otherwise. Um, and so I see it as a nudge out of my comfort zone, I would say, into something new. And then going into something new, it has turned into a really awesome um, journey and growth experience. And I've had so many um, wonderful opportunities, um, being in this new environment, being in the Midwest, getting to learn the Midwest. And um, and so now I can kind of, you know, mark that off as, a, yeah, I did that. And, but it took um, that period to happen to help um, give me the push, I would say, that I need. So instead of seeing it as a negative, see it as a nudge to inspire you to do something else, to hopefully stimulate uh, 
uh, a foundation for your next dream or the next uh, chapter in your career. That's so true. When a door closes, another one opens. You have to be Absolutely. Yes. So and, and that's a you, leap for uh, faith. <laughs> <laughs> right, because I've never been to Kansas. I can only, how is it? How is the Midwest? How are you liking it? Actually, you know, it's not bad. It really isn't. And, um, and it actually reminds me, um, has some notes of the South in it a little bit. Okay. Uh, so, um, so yeah, it's been a pretty seamless transition, uh, with the exception of winter. You know, I, I grew up on the beach and in the South. Mm-hmm. That's my combined childhood. So getting used to snow is a totally different thing. But, um, but it's like it. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> So even with that, I mean, that the layman person looking at you on LinkedIn and watching the success that you um, exhibit and, and um, show in our profession would never know that those things are in your history. So congratulations on being Thank a so well-recognized in laboratory profession. You've been nominated for so many awards and received so many accolades. So tell us what's next for you personally and professionally. Uh, when, what is next? Um, I need to survive my doctoral program. <laughs> um, so I would say um, that's really what's on my radar is uh, successfully completing my program. Um, I would actually be the first in my family um, to have that uh, lovely doctor title. And so, um, you know, anything I do, I know it's not just about me. Um, it's really um uh, I would say shouldering or um, building a, what I heard it somewhere, building a legacy from ashes. So um, I just want to role model what I can for, um, especially like my younger family members, um, you know, what's possible and that it is attainable, you know, regardless of, uh, you know, generational curses or, or what you've been told what you can't do. And um, so in achieving that, I, that would be um, really, um, really amazing and a testament to the hard work of my parents, uh, my grandparents, and so forth. So um, just really honoring them in that way, um, because I am in a position to be able to um, pursue that educational degree, and, uh, and I need to do my part in successfully completing it. Uh, so... I would say that's really the where my eyes are, um, and of course, um, just getting better at what I do, um, making sure that I am accessible and meeting the needs of my students, because that's really um, very important and crucial to me that they're getting what they need, um, especially now in light of COVID. Um, pandemic has been really hard, especially on students having to, you know, they're so used to being together and uh, congregating together, and now, you know, everyone's been, um, I'll say, isolated off into their living spaces. And so just making sure that everyone um, is well-balanced and, um, and that we're meeting their needs the best that we can and um, supporting their journey, you know. So I would really say that's where, I'm, where my eyes are <laughs> right now. Well, that's a great goal. So do you have um, something you can leave the listeners with that could help them in their, in their pursuit um, to get better, um, just like you are doing in your personal life? Any apps that you use or any websites that you could recommend or books that you uh, would um, request that we all uh, look at so we can be just like Dana? Oh, gosh, don't be just like Dana. <laughs> be better than Dana. Um, what would Dana do? Honestly, because I'm in school, you know, I don't have time for apps so much or um, <laughs> non-school-related um, reading. But I would say um, resource-wise, um, if you are not plugged in already, get plugged into a professional organization. That is my biggest piece of advice. Um, we, we need more people, uh, especially those earlier on in the profession, to become locked in and engaged in these uh, professional societies. So whether it is ASCP, ASCLS, AADB, ASH, ASM, you name it. Um, there are so many opportunities, growth opportunities, um, when you really get connected. Um, you know, I've heard some say, you know, I don't care about, be, you know, growing a network. 
per se. I'm like, but you need a network, especially in those times where you do need reference letters, for instance, when you decide you want to go back to school. Or um, if you want other job opportunities, just to be able to reach out to someone in another part of the country and say, hey, I, I was laid off or furloughed. Do you know anyone who may be hiring? Um, and so I'll just, that's my like biggest, biggest piece is um, getting yourself connected, getting yourself plugged in. Um, and not just simply just being a member, but becoming a volunteer on uh, special committees or um, special groups. Um, and make sure it's your area of interest. Like if you're really passionate about diversity, for instance, you know, there are diversity, um, what do you call it, uh, diversity advocacy councils or diversity and inclusion committees. If you're more into public health policy, there are special committees for that. Um, you know, if you're an educator, there's those opportunities as well. Uh, I say one of the biggest things that has helped me along the way is saying yes. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people know that about, I say yes to almost everything. <laughs> and um, that can probably overfill my plate a lot, but, um, but it's been very rewarding. Um, even saying yes to things that appear uh, challenging up front. Um, challenge is good. <laughs> challenge is good for growth, I would say. And so, um, so yeah, just, you know, expand yourself in any way that you can, especially given uh, what you may want for yourself or want to be able to accomplish within your career. Uh, so that, that would be my advice, I would say. And as we wrap it up, tell the listeners how they can learn more about you or reach out to you. Sure. Um, so when I do have time, you can find me on Twitter. Um, my handle there is at that lab chick. And then I'm also on Instagram at hello, I am that lab chick. And you can also find me on LinkedIn under Dana Bostic. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Ms. Um, Dana Bostic. It was a joy and a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. Um, thank you to the t listening I'm audience here. for tuning into this show today. Um, and we hopefully you come for to come back and be a regular guest on the show. This was awesome. And yeah, I, I would love to come back. A lot. I think you gave us a lot to think about, so thank you. Um, no, thank if you've you. liked this what you awesome. heard today and you want to listen to our previous shows, please subscribe to directimpactbroadcasting.com. Remember to email us at elaboratetopics at directimpactbroadcasting.com to learn more about this topic and to uh, maybe give us suggestions about other topics or even to be a guest on our show. Like I said, I'm your co-host, Stephanie Whitehead. You can follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram at Stephanie Y. Whitehead, Stephanie Whitehead on Facebook. Um, please tune in to next week's show where we'll have another amazing episode of Elaborate Topics. And until then, have a good one. Thank you, Dana. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Elaborate Topics where your hosts discussed relevant strategies for laboratory professionals. Please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and listen to us on directimpactbroadcasting.com. Stay tuned for another episode with information you can use to excel in your laboratory career.